Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. So I have a question for you, and that's how do you get a busy marketing leader to give you or your agency the time of day? You can have everything perfectly positioned. You could have all the case studies in the world, and still they might not talk to you if they were not actively looking for an agency right now. So what do you do? Because you know that you have to be opening these doors consistently and early so that you are the shoe in when that need actually arises and so that you can actually encourage a solution to the problem that the brand might be experiencing. But how do you open that door to begin with? Well, it's a simple yet difficult task and its simplicity lies into sending the right words to the right people. The problem is most agencies never figure out how to do it at scale. So they remain tethered to sporadic referrals, RFP, dog and pony shows, and other stuff that tends to create a feast and famine dynamic. To get beyond this, many agencies spin their wheels even more on start and stop campaigns, and they just sort of end up as the cobbler's children forever. They, they serve their clients well, but they don't effectively market themselves. So instead of overcomplicating the sales process and trying to do everything under the sun, what if you had a repeatable process for simply opening doors, for de-risking conversations with busy and skeptical prospects? Today, I'd like to give you something that's going to help in a big way, and it's basically 10 effective agency-to-brand email templates that we have developed from thousands of campaigns. You can get that by going to saleschema.com slash templates, plural. Again, that's saleschema.com slash templates. As a little disclaimer, this lead magnet will not completely solve the problem of getting repeatable new business, but it's going to be a big step in the right direction since a little inspiration can go a long way. So that's saleschema.com slash templates. Again, saleschema.com slash templates. I really enjoyed today's interview because this guest encapsulated so much of what it's like to run campaigns in the e-commerce space. And he likened that process to, to a game of chess. And I think this is really, really interesting because with so many other types of clients and campaigns, you might be kind of siloed away from other bigger business problems, you know, where if you're you're doing a big campaign for, you know, Doritos, you're trying to get more customers, you're trying to get more eyeballs, impressions, and so on. There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But I think what's interesting about the e-commerce space is that you're also, you're juggling way more things. You're pulling way more levers. If you get a lot of customers, you might not be able to fulfill. If you can't fulfill, then you might not be able to get more customers later, and so on and so forth. Everything's kind of tied together in a really interesting way, which means that I, I think you know one one through line that I've seen for so many of the agencies that we've talked to in this world is they end up becoming more like management consultants. They're sort of ingrained with sort of deeper, more interesting problems within a business. Uh, and, and today's guest is no exception by by likening that whole process to a game of chess. So anyway, to actually shed some light on this person, today's guest is Dwayne Brown. Dwayne is the founder and head of strategy at an agency called Take Some Risk based up in Canada. Uh, they've worked with all sorts of brands like Walmart, Birdies, Rosenrex, FTD slash ProFlowers. They have a lot of experience doing interesting things in, in alternative ad networks like Snapchat. So we covered that a little bit. So I think you're going to get a lot out of this interview, kind of thinking with that, that chess mental model, Dwayne goes into 
how to structure deals the right way, you know, how to structure deals in, in a more creative way so that you're actually getting upside uh, and incentivized in the right direction in the context of e-commerce. Um, we, we went into to ideal salaries and really, you know, kind of like meat and potatoes stuff related to what to pay people in your agency. And in fact, uh, Take Some Risk has come out with a report. Um, basically, just the twenty going up through twenty twenty, just an overall salary survey across the board of agency positions, which I think is going to be super useful for lots of people. So, if you like to get access to that, just go to saleschema.com and click podcast, and you'll see Dwayne's episode right there. Um, and you can click through, and we've we've got that linked up uh, to a PDF there. Uh, so, without further ado, please give it up for Dwayne Brown. Dwayne, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah, for sure. So you're you're up in Montreal, and I know from your bio a little bit that you've you've been to a lot of different countries. I don't think uh, I, I I have as well, but maybe not as many as you. And it's been it's been a while since I traveled. But I I, I guess how did how did you end up in Montreal? And I'd love to hear more about your your stories and your travels first to start out with. Sure, it was cheap to live. That's basically was the thing. I was living in Vancouver for four years in Vancouver, Canada, not Vancouver, Washington, even though they're very close by. Uh, I just found that Vancouver wasn't for me. And so I decided, okay, well, where can I move in the country? I can move back to Toronto where I'm from. Um, but I didn't feel I was ready to move back. Uh, and so I'm like, it's a large city. So there's like 1.8 million people in, in Montreal itself. And the greater Montreal area is probably 3 million. Uh, and one thing I didn't like about Vancouver proper, it was about 600,000 people. So the size of Winnipeg, which is in the middle of Canada. And so it was too small. So I'm like, let's just go to Montreal, test it out for a year or two, see if we like it. If I don't, I can move somewhere else. I've moved seven or eight times in the last decade. So like moving somewhere else is not really an uh, issue. And, and it's easy because like, I have no boyfriend, I have no kids, I have no like other responsibilities other than my mom. So I can move if I, if I want to. Yeah. And, and the, the 40 countries, did you travel? Did you do all those travels before you started the agency or were you managing to kind of build an agency on the road and so on? Most before I started the agency, yeah. um, I did about nine before my 29th birthday. Um, and then I paid off all my student debt in one go, which was not easy, not anything like Americans and their student debt, more like yeah. Europeans and our student debt. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I moved to Australia. So that was like a country 26 or 25 for me, um, or country 10, I guess. And then I moved to Europe and lived in London. And then I did like 14 countries in, in there. And then, uh, because the startup I worked for got bought, uh, I lost my job and everyone lost their job and I couldn't renew the visa I was on. So then I went to travel in Asia for about 10 weeks on my own. And so I went through like 13 countries and 22 cities in about 10 weeks, uh, just crisscrossing both North Asia. So, you know, things like Japan and Seoul and stuff like that to like Southeast Asia. And I've been to every country now with the exception of like uh, Papua New Guinea, Myanmar, China. And if you consider India part of Asia, then I've not been to India either. Um, so nice. it's been mostly before, but it's it's been like progression along the way. I was going to do Portugal this year, but obviously that didn't happen. So Portugal's on my list for country number 41. But yeah, I said nice because I've got you for, for at least two countries. Like you've got me overall, but I, I made it to, to Myanmar in, uh, in 2014. And it's, it's a really cool place. So I, there's Bragan, you know, and there's like, it's called, and there's thousands of temples and everything. And I made it to India. So uh, it's the classic douchey travel brag competition, right? <laughs> that you get in when, you, when, you're, when you're on those circuits. So, um, so it sounds like, you know, you kind of, kind of built this agency in Canada. And the first thing that I think is, intriguing about your agencies is, is the name uh, takes some risks. So I'd love to hear kind of, kind of what it, what, what went into naming it. I wanted to pick a name that both 
said who we are as a company, but also like talked about like who I am as a person. Cause I mean, back then it was just me four years ago. And so I needed a name that like, um, when they think of that name, they think of me. Um, I think of all my friends would pretty much say like, I'm an international matter of mystery or it's crazy to move this country. And I think being like a black gay guy, like I don't have as much opportunities if you're a straight white dude in advertising, like people are going to like be twice as critiqued. So I've had to take lots of risks to like get to where I am and work my ass off twice as hard to like just compete for things. And so uh, when I was thinking about names, I was like, take a risk is grammatically correct. But like in life, you don't take one risk when you want to get someone, you've got to take like multiple risks. We see lots of big businesses. They took, you know, 10 risks to get to a billion dollars. And then they started to like get really cocky if you're like Facebook. Uh, and then you don't take as many risks and then you start to like erode your market share. And so, you know, we want to name, take some risks because we want clients to take tons of risks to get to where they want. Oftentimes, it's not that they have a bad product or a bad idea, though sometimes they do. It's that they've stopped taking risks to get to where they want to go. Getting to a million dollars is not easy, but if you want to get to two, three, four million, you can't always do what you used to do to get to a million. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And and how do you think that's uh, kind of determined the type of clients that that you get? Has has that been a situation where you're already kind of qualifying out a lot of people? And you know, is there's how would you describe your client base based on the the sort of culture you've built around that brand? I guess that's the question. Totally. We do have like seven or eight questions we started to ask in the last year, just around like, you know, revenue and ad spend and profit margins and stuff to qualify people. Because people email us and either want to kick the tires or they want to spend a thousand dollars a month. And we're not for you if you want to spend a thousand dollars a month. Like our minimum is five thousand dollars a month. And maybe we take you on at four if we really like what you sell. Um, so we definitely do qualify, but also just take on people who who like my personality. I'm not everyone's cup of tea. Our agency's not everyone's cup of tea. If you want like task takers, we're not for us. Like, or we're not for you. If you want someone who's going to like push you out of your comfort zone and tell you when you're wrong, tell you when things don't make sense. I've told clients that like, yeah, this is wrong. Or this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Well, we're talking to two different co-founders because the other co-founder didn't know what they were talking about. Like, this just doesn't make any sense. Like, you need to be able to like take constructive feedback that's trying to help you push your business forward. And if you don't want that, you don't, you don't want to hire us. Um, and it's not easy, but like, it's just, it's just the way I am. Like I will also take it in the reverse. If I fuck up in some way, I tell a client, you tell me, just like email me, call me. Um, like I talked to the client on Monday and like, there's this problem, Dwayne, and it involves one of the other clients. I'm like, okay, okay. And we had a, we had a 45 minute conversation and I was very calm about it. Cause I'm like, okay, I didn't realize that this was a, uh, a problem, whatever the problem was, and we talked about it, and we'll probably talk about it again two or three times. And at some point, we'll have to take action. Um, but I want clients who can like have a, a healthy give and take relationship because we both want to be successful. Yeah, that, that, that's really important. It makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I don't know if I'm going to bring this to a concise question, but I guess I would love to learn a little, a little bit more about how, how you guys think about risk management. Like if you're working with an e-commerce brand and you know you're, you're encouraging them to take take some risk, like the name of the, of the agency. Yeah. What does that look like? Like, what is the sort of risk that a company that wants to get from X to Y from 1 million to 5 million needs to be thinking about and, and leaning into? Sure. Totally. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to go from 1 to 5 million overnight or in the year, even with the year of the pandemic, that would just be like lots of risks. I think the first thing is, which I tell clients that there's not one kind of risk, you know, there, there are degrees of risk. There are big risks and small risks. And I started watching Star Trek recently. I don't know if you watched Star Trek before, Dan. And I've never really watched this kid except I was homesick. And so yeah. I would say I'm like the Vulcans, right? I'm very logical. I'm very methodical. That's how I think. And so I'm like, 
let's look at all your options. Let's weigh the risk of all the options. Let's weigh which one we want to do. We pick a, you know, option A or option B, and then we do it and see what happens. You know, a good example is a few of our clients this year were like, well, you can't do what you did last year. So last year, you'd wait till three or four products came in the warehouse. Then you'd launch all three at the same time. You'd send some emails, you'd run some paid ads, and everything was good. With manufacturing being an issue this year, and us seeing what's going on in like Asia and in Europe and know that's going to eventually hit North America, we're telling clients, well, okay, you need to think more like a sneaker company. You need to drop things when they come to your warehouse and not wait for other products because you don't know what's going to back up, what's not going to come next. And if we drop things, we see it's doing well, we can always just go and order more of that. We'll wait for other things to come. And so that's like inherently a risk. You're changing how you operate your business, but it's a low risk because all you're doing is saying, instead of waiting three months for three products, you're just going to drop a product every month or a product every six weeks. And you'll get fast feedback on what is or isn't working versus big risks are like a client changed their platform, but they don't really know what they're doing and they didn't hire the right people. And we weren't aware of it till like too far in. Uh, and then they didn't have anyone like redirect their SEO links. And so that was like a huge risk where it's like, you probably should talk to someone on your team who's more knowledgeable about, about this risk here. Um, so I think it's about weighting your risk and figuring out which one makes the most sense uh, and then doing it. You know, another great example is like, you know, in Canada, we've got higher cell phone bills than you all in America. We have like the third highest bill for an average person in, in any sort of G7 country. And so like a risk is like, hey, can we ask people for their email and their SMS number so that we can like text them on their cell phone? You know, that is a risk just changing how you communicate with people. But it seems like a low level risk that could benefit the brand. So we just weigh the risks, figure out which one makes the most sense, and then do it. And I tell every client, you can say no, but I'll probably bring it up again in six months if I think it's a really, really good idea, especially if you see other people doing it in general in Canada or in America or in Europe, because it's going to eventually come here whether we want it or not. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's so much I want to dig into there. Um, so the, the first thing is you, you kind of hinted at like things that, that grind your gears, you know, SEO uh, and that sort of thing for us. And I feel like in, in every business, you see this where there's clients that do things that they perceive to be low risk that are actually high risk and and then vice versa. There's things that are perceived to be high risk that are actually, you might as well just test them and see see how they work. In our space, the things that are perceived to be kind of lower risk are, are like hiring, you know, really expensive salespeople <laughs> and, uh, and just like sending them off into the cold with no support. And then three, six months and a hundred thousand dollars later, nothing's happened. So <laughs> I, I love to hear like you, what do you, are, are, is there anything like that that reoccurs where you're like, stop doing this thing that's perceived to be low risk, but it's actually really high risk and doesn't make sense. Yeah, I'd say the opposite of what you just said is basically hiring the cheap agency, whoever the mm -hmm. cheapest one was, and the perception that like clients think that if I pay X agency, let's say a thousand dollars a month or five hundred dollars a month, even though the ad spend I'm giving them is four thousand dollars a month, I'm coming out ahead because let's say Dwayne's agency was two thousand dollars a month and five thousand dollars. They assume because they're 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 I'm going to call it gross cost. So the agency fee plus the management fee or the management fee for the agency plus the like media fee is cheaper than what our media fee is in our management fee that they're going to come out ahead. But what they don't realize is that I'm going to say the shit agency for lack of a better word has like a higher CPA. So now you're paying in some clients cases, $400 to acquire a customer versus the $55 we got you a customer for, which is just as qualified. And so you're spending more money to acquire less. And so I think that's something clients don't realize that is a high risk because like you're spending more money 
in totality to acquire these customers, but clients don't view it that way. They just look at what the bottom line is. Oh, I just paid this agency a thousand dollars and my media was four. They don't take into account that like, well, what is it costing you in time and customer acquisition to actually get those customers? Um, so I think it's, it's that one of not uh, valuing the job of marketing, which is actually is an issue of, of the market industry as a whole. We don't sell ourselves very well. We're not like accountants, lawyers, architects that have done a really good job of being like, yeah, you should pay us a thousand an hour because of this. We're like, pay us $15 an hour and pay us $1,000 an hour, but no one understands like why those are very different. And two people who have similar CVs are actually not the same. A CV means like next to nothing on like what we do. Uh, and then there's not really anything else beyond that. I think it's just clients being uh, more open to realizing they don't know what they don't know. Uh, too many clients don't know things or they're afraid to ask questions because they look stupid. And we try to like encourage clients to ask just as many questions as they want. Even if it's the same question a second time, though I tell them, if you ask me a question a third time that we've already talked about, I'm going to try to find out why you didn't get it the first two times so that you don't ask me a fourth time because it just wastes you know both of our time. Um, so yeah, I think it's just, you know, not hiring the right people to do the job and not looking beyond the like the bottom line cost you're in, getting invoiced for because there's a bigger cost there of just wasted time. Uh, and that example of 400 customers to 55 is, is actually a real example of a real customer uh, that I just like, which shook my head and be like, we're now firing you a few weeks ago because you just don't value what we did. And I can't, I can't help someone who doesn't want to get help. Right. 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 And you touched on some really interesting things there. I think that it reminds me of this. There's a great sales book called Challenger Sale and they talk about uh, rational drowning, which there's a point at which you need to, people need to go through this, this drawn out rational exercise to kind of like justify the thing they, they already want to do. And so I'm wondering, is there anything that you guys are, are doing to kind of take clients through that, you know, and, and that's, that's sort of the more cynical way of looking at it. I think another way of looking at it is, you know, getting used to understanding what needs to be spent in order to, to accomplish a certain thing. And I think uh, it's not, people aren't born knowing how to do that. So I'm wondering, you know, if you're talking about um, setting the right expectations and saying, Hey, you know, you could spend this, spend X on a cheap agency or spend Y on, on us and get this other return. Are you, are you guys taking people through like an ROI, you know, calculator? Is there anything that you found to work for setting those expectations? Well, we don't do an ROI calculator, but yeah, we do talk about that. We often tell clients like, yes, you're paying, you know, a thousand versus 2000 for us as an example, potentially, because you're going to get someone who's a year or two out of school. I've got 14 years of experience. I'm old as fuck. So I, Yes, the person with two years experience could be really good. Like I shouldn't say that two years isn't a lot of time. You could be really good and work for like a huge agency, but all things being equal, if you've got two years experience, you're probably not gonna be able to compete with me at the same level. Cause it's not just like the number of years, it's like the amount of places I've worked and the countries I've worked in and that depth of experience of just like lots of failures, lots of mistakes, lots of successes, lots of wins, lots of me be able to like sometimes try to like predict mistakes that are going to happen, you know, two, three moves ahead. It's like a game of chess. Like you're not making a decision now. You're trying to figure out what decisions are going to be impacted in the future and, and trying to mitigate that risk as much as possible. So we do try to explain that. And then we try to like show our expertise. You know, a good example would be lots of agencies who run stuff for Facebook don't realize that like when you make a Facebook ad account, it is attached to that email just for life. So when your agency makes your Facebook ad account, you cannot kick them off of that ad account or that business manager and clients don't know that. And agencies sometimes don't know that. And so when I tell a client that, they're like, oh, I'm like, yeah, so you need to go make yourself a new ad account or a new business manager because now you've lost all your data that's in that account and you've got to like move that pixel potentially to somewhere else. And so we try to show our expertise of things that 
everyone should know who does this job, but like the average or bad people don't know or don't care. And we know and we make sure that clients like own their ad account, they own their pixel, they own all their assets. Because when you leave, I don't want any of that stuff. No one on my team wants it. It's yours, take it with you. So we do try to show the like value of like our expertise and our knowledge and our intelligence and problems they're probably going to encounter. You know, in the summer we talked to this deodorant brand and they're like, Oh yeah. So we're thinking about hiring you or someone else. And I was like, you know, we thought we were going to run ads, but then we couldn't run ads because we sold like things that Facebook said are COVID related. And they're like, Oh, actually you can run things for COVID because it's like the end of May. We were talking to them and like Facebook put a new row in two weeks ago. And then I Googled it while on the call. I sent them to the link. And so we try to add value. We didn't win that one because for the fact they wanted to go with someone cheaper. Uh, and I just said, well, good luck. I don't think you're going to get the sales you want because you went again with someone cheaper. Um, but we do the best to add value and knowledge where we can or just help someone out on that 30-minute intro call. If they still don't go with us, that's totally cool. I want to make like our industry as a whole better. And then beyond that, it's just like just hit home our experience, especially if it's like international stuff, live in Australia, live in the UK, um, trying to trying to like find what makes the person tick and like what their problem is. And if I can lean on what their problem is and what makes them tick of like you know, we didn't have enough communication with the other agency or we don't understand this media report they send us. So just like giving as much knowledge as we can so that clients can ask us harder questions and challenge us to do better is, has kind of worked well in our favor. But I'm going to launch a thread this morning about it on Twitter. But basically, like, I want half the people we talk to to say no to us because we're too expensive. We don't want everyone to say yes. If everyone says yes to your proposal, your prices are too low. You should raise your prices by at least 20%. You don't want everyone to say yes. Right, right. That that makes a lot of sense. And um, kind of back to, to get back to the e-commerce world, and you, you were talking about, you know, how more brands should kind of think like sneaker companies. I, I'd, love, I'd love to just sort of learn about what you've experienced over the last months or years in terms of, of I don't know, if the like geopolitical events, the trade wars, COVID, like how is this affecting your work and, and, and how you guys are operating in the e-commerce space when goods actually have to be shipped from one place to another? Yeah, it's definitely a lot more complicated. I mean, if you look at Brexit in the UK, I mean, that's been going on for five years now, four years, whatever it is. That's not really impacted yet because the UK hasn't technically left the like European Union. They're still in that like weird transition period, which is like not getting divorced with someone, but still being married for four years. You know, you want to get divorced. It's, it's a weird situation. Um, but when that actually happens, because I assume they're actually still going to leave with no deal, that will impact things in terms of like tariffs. Not a lot of clients ship to the UK, only a handful do, but like that's more of an operational side thing. But we will bring it up with them because we may want to either pull back spend in the UK. We may want to go harder on the spend, depending on like how it affects the products that we sell. Um, I think, you know, from a global perspective, we just try to like look at events that are going on and see how they impact. So like this year, um, you know, I almost didn't travel in February to go to a couple conferences in America because like there was like words of this virus coming down and I like hemmed and hawed. I did go in the end, um, but it was on the back of my mind. If I get like COVID or whatever this virus is back then, I'm like, I'm just going to hate myself. Um, but looking at like what happened in Asia and what happened in Europe, we started telling clients like, this is, this is not going to be good. It's like, you want to figure out manufacturing. You want to figure out like what we're going to do. We're probably going to have to like have more constant communication. So for like one client for the last seven months, so up until like the end of August, I pretty much send an email every seven to 10, seven to 10 days to tell them like, this is what we're doing. This is what's happening. This is how the account's going. Um, because I think that client versus other clients just needed that more reassurance where I'm some of our other clients have, you know, retail stores and, you know, 50 employees and they've got all these other things to worry about that they're not, not that they're not worried about the ad account, but they're like, 
unless the report is really off, Dwayne's got this, so I'm just going to worry about the rest of my business that is like potentially on fire. So geopolitical things don't always like impact us in the same way. I've got a friend who does stuff on Amazon. And so all of the shutdowns in, in parts of Asia impact a lot of his clients where like it didn't impact us because a lot of our clients make their product in Canada for Canadian clients and American clients, they make it in America and some things they do make overseas does impact them, but we're just like, get what you can, when you can, we'll launch it, do the best we can, pull back and spend where we need to, uh, and just like reassess. It's basically like this year has been a reassess every two weeks, reassess every month, and just keep on trying to figure out as we get more information. Uh, I often joke that like, I predicted we'd close our border with America because that was just the logical choice. We can't keep on having Canadians go to America and American goes to Canada when there's a virus ripping through our continent and other places like Africa shut everyone out from Europe to go to Africa or people in like New Zealand and Australia basically says you can't travel into our country and or your Australia, you can't travel interstatally. So like you see these things happening, you have to predict that they're going to happen here and figure out how that impacts you, if at all. But we're lucky that a lot of our Canadian clients make stuff in Canada and some of our American clients stuff make stuff in America. So we've been we've been grateful and lucky, but we still look at what's going to happen because we, we don't know like when things change, if they're going to change for the good or for the bad. Um, it's been a good right. year for us. We've doubled in revenue over last year. We've hired three more people, but like... Uh, I still go to bed at night thinking like I'll wake up tomorrow and something bad's going to happen, Dan, and I'm just going to have to like change everything we've done, which is totally okay. Um, but you wake up every day thinking that today could be the day that it all comes crashing down. Right. It's I guess it's what we all signed up for. Um, and, and earlier, you know, you mentioned kind of like <clears throat> encouraging clients to drop or pick up certain products based on on what's going on. And it it, it's, it seems like when I talk to agencies, they're as time goes on, they get more and more ingrained in a business, and they almost become like consultancies or an, an extension of the business. Yeah. Would you say that's true for you guys? And I'd love to hear kind of where you think you know, where, where, where you think things will be in the next X years based on that trend. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, one client sent me a Christmas gift the other day, like Monday, cause like they feel we're a partner in their business. And so we do try to uh, understand the client's business as much as we can and try to maybe help them. Uh, what we'll say is operationalize the business. Cause not all of our clients are like on their second e-commerce company or on their third. Some of them are on their first and they don't know what they don't know. And we have access to a dozen, 24, whatever it is, different e-commerce brands. And so we can see like what is and what isn't working. And we'll, so we'll help clients just operationalize things as much as we can and, and make sure they're using either the best software or the right software for their situation. You know, oftentimes brands will like, I'm going to go with HubSpot. I'm like, you don't, need HubSpot and HubSpot's overkill. And it's maybe not the best for what you want to do. Maybe Clavio is better or, you know, pop-up script or whatever it is. So we do try to like get ingrained in the business so that we can help them just run a more efficient business. So that means they can free up the time to do what most of our clients love to do, which is like make product. They don't love running a business, right? No one loves uploading SKUs to Shopify or whatever the platform is. It's not a fun task. Um, so we do look at ourselves as like, one part consultants, if you will, but like really, really heavy on one part, like execution, you know, and we've done that in a way that we've split our fees in two actually. So we have like a strategy fee we charge clients every month, which is operational stuff. And then we have like a, a, you know, PPC paid ads management fee we charge every clients. And we tell clients like, if we're really good at our jobs, you'll have no issue paying us $8,000 a month because you're making a hundred thousand a month or $2 million a month or whatever the number is. Um, so we do think of ourselves as more than PPC agency and that's um, where the industry is going. You know, it's much like graphic designers 10 years ago where you have Squarespace and things that just immediately to them 
we're going to have people come along, including the ad platforms that basically say, we don't want you to run the account anymore. We're just going to have machines do it. And so that means we need to think more about uh, strategy and operations and those things. Um, but we already predicted this thing like two years ago and changed our fee structure. And so if a client doesn't want to pay us a strategy fee, we just don't want them as a client. Like we don't want you running strategy because if you knew how to run strategy for paid ads, you wouldn't be hiring us. Right. And we don't want to take it from a big agency because if the big agency knew what they were doing. You wouldn't be coming to us again. Um, so it's mm-hmm. going to go in that direction where, yeah, you're more of a consultant, maybe slash executioner. Um, and that's okay, but that's not going to work for everyone because not everyone's good at like understanding how the decisions they make today impacts things tomorrow. Like right. e-commerce is a game of chess. You're making lots of moves and you've got to make a lot of the right moves to be successful. Otherwise you're going to get boxed in uh, and your queen's going to get captured, which is which is unfortunate. Yeah, it's a, it's a great line. Uh, it, it's, can, can you clarify that a little bit more in terms of the strategy fee versus PPC fee and just kind of how you're dividing those things up? Yeah, sure, totally. So the PPC fee is basically for like execution and just managing the ad accounts, whether it's Google, Facebook, Snap, whatever it is. And so it's, us, in our case, it's a flat 10% of spend. Some places do eight, some places do five, some places still do 12 or 15. And, you know, it varies from, from company to company. Um, so that's just for like running the accounts, managing the accounts, updating the accounts, making sure like someone has an eyes on the account. Uh, and then our strategy fee is basically for us to always, you know, reevaluate is what we're doing the right strategy. You know, I think this year has been a perfect example. Uh, what clients were doing last year are not what they're doing this year. What we're doing in Q1 is not what we're doing in Q3 and Q4. And so the strategy is all just reevaluating what's going on in the market. And if we need to tweak our ad copy, tweak our creative images, do I need more creative images? Do we need to shift money, which we have from Facebook to Google or Facebook to Snap? And so it's just about being strategic of like, what are we going to do? And not so much what we're going to execute because execution falls on, under the you know, under the PPC management fee. Um, it's a bit different. There's not a lot of agencies that charge that way. Most do either just the flat fee or just the percentage or just hours. We don't sell hours because it's the worst way to make money as an agency. And we are a business too, and we have to make money. And so we decided, okay, well, if we think that strategy is just important as execution and that you need both to be really successful, because if you just have a strategy and you don't execute, it's going to bomb. If you execute greatly, but it's a poor strategy, you still could fail. And if we believe you do need both and you do need both, and who says otherwise is a liar, then we should charge clients for both because clients only value what you charge them for. If you don't charge them for something, they do not value it. You know, a good example is we did some free design work for a client for like a host of reasons, which I agree it was a bad decision, Dan, uh, and they did not value it. And so we had to fire this client. And so I've learned over the years that if you don't charge someone for it, they may have you do it and they may like that you do it, but they don't value it because they're not paying you. They don't look at you as like a vendor or an employee or a contractor or something like that. Right. And if you're just charging that PPC fee, then you're sort of like, like a man with a hammer, like everything, everything's a nail, you know, cause you, you, you're stuck with this arbitrary channel that may or may not fulfill a business goal. So exactly, I, I, yeah. I really like that. Yeah. That makes a lot of, makes a lot of sense. And I guess beyond that, are there any new pricing models, structural models that you see kind of coming down the pike on the horizon? You know, like is, does this keep going? Does this get to a place where you're, you have a stake in the company cause you're, you're now involved in even bigger decisions. So I just love to, hear your thoughts on that. Totally. I mean, the current ways to charge is, you know, by the hour, 
Uh, if you're British, there's like a day rate. So you charge for a, a day of time, which is usually eight hours. You know, you could do a flat fee or some sort of flat retainer. So a flat fee could be like a flat project fee because they're going to hire you for two months to do X things. A monthly retainer could be they're just going to hire you for uh, a no end date contract and they just pay every month to do a, a host of things. So those are kind of the four ones, every hourly day rate, project rate, and sort of some sort of retainer rate. Uh, there's obviously what we do, which is a combination model. Um, but beyond that, and what we've tried to do, and it can be a struggle, is like a sort of a paid for performance type model. So i.e. you get like a percentage of revenue. Uh, it's a hard one to make work because either the client's got to be big enough that they've figured out a lot of their operational stuff out and there's not a lot of ambiguity. But then also there's got to be enough margin in the product for the client to give you percentage of revenue and still make a profit. Like we talked to a brand that was that has less than a 15% profit margin. Um, they sent me a spreadsheet based on like basically not all their costs, but their their top line costs. Uh, and they're like, yeah, we can't make this work. I copied the spreadsheet, um, like redid the spreadsheet because it was just a, like a PDF. And I like I recreated it. I put in the numbers as percentages, as dollars. And I'm just like, there's no way for them to give us a percent of revenue on top of our flat fee to make this work. And the percentage of revenue would have been like, if we hit a six ROAS, we got this. If we hit a seven ROAS, we got this. And like, if we hit a five, we just get a flat fee because five is what they needed to like basically start to turn a profit. Uh, and the last agency was getting them a, you know, a foreign change. But the last agency wasn't also doing any work. They just build them every month and made like 69 changes, but 65 of those changes were just increasing the budget every month. So it's like, they're not really doing anything. You could like fire them and this account would probably just run the same for the next six months. Um, so we've done, we try to do pay for points, but it's hard because the clients who want to do it are too small. Uh, and the clients that are really big are hesitant to do it because they don't want to like give away a piece of the action all the time. Um, but it is a model that we're going to try to like continue to move into because like we've had clients go from like half a million to two million this year or half a million to three and a half million. And I'm like, percent of revenue would have been really good on that client. Some of those clients, it wouldn't have worked because the margins are too thin. Um, but if we can find one where it works, we can scale it. I'd love a piece of the action. Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting. Like the, the dynamics at play, cause it's almost like either you get to the point of being not needed anymore. Like if you weren't involved in deeper strategy and you were just somebody with a hammer handling, you know, Facebook ads, then you get to the point where it's like, okay, this is well optimized. We kind of get it. We can do it ourselves or, or whatever, or, or else you're getting into deeper strategy, but then you're, you're kind of like continuing to branch out from, you know, into new things and from your agency's core competency and having to learn new things all the time and so on. It seems like, like it seems like the incentive is either, either pushed one way or the other, where you're like going outside of what you know best or else becoming unneeded or, or redundant over time. You know, I guess, would you agree with that? And I'd love to hear how you, how you kind of manage that at that issue. Totally. That is a real thing. It, it's the, I don't know if you would call it the client fallacy, but the idea that the client knows more than when they started with you and they think they know so much that they could just run the account themselves. Um, and so they, then they fire you and run it themselves. And then because they forget to take away your access to the account, you can see the tank, the account tank performance wise, or they hire a cheaper agency and, they, and the account tanks. We've had both of those over the last few years. Uh, but it is a real thing where clients just don't think they need you or they're like, oh, why are we paying you five, seven, eight, $10,000 a month? We could just do this ourselves. But it's one of those clients don't know what they don't know or the cheap cheap agency that's promised you lots of stuff doesn't actually have access to the ad accounts. So they don't know what they don't know. Um, and so we always tell every client on like 
the sort of client call that if in 18 or 24 months, you decide you want to take it in house, I will help you hire someone. I will like interview them and I'll make sure you find the best person possible because you take it in house is probably the best compliment. We've done our job. We've grown you to the point that you think you can take this in house and you have enough, enough, enough need for a marketing person, even if it's not just specifically a paid person. Uh, I don't like it. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to lose a client, but I also know that like, it's easy to hire the wrong person. Often our best clients are clients that have been through two or three other agencies and the other agencies just don't know what they're doing um, because the person who has an agency is a salesperson or they've hired lots of people who are just mediocre as fuck. And so they don't know that like your performance you've gotten is like, okay, it's not amazing and it could be better. Um, and so the way we've mitigated that is, yeah, we try to go deep in the strategy end. We don't go like super deep in e-commerce where we know everything because we don't. But if clients have a question, we'll answer it. If we don't have an answer, we'll either research it if it's something we want to learn about or I'll refer clients to someone in our network who could probably answer the question a lot better and or potentially if the client wants to hire that person. Like lots of clients come to us for email marketing. We don't do it. So I'll refer it to someone in our network. Video is the same way. We don't do a video or refer someone to our network. Um, and so we just try to like word as much of the business as we can um, and just find that balance between like knowing tons but not knowing things we don't need to know. Um, and if a client tells us things we don't need to know and they send us like a report or a document, like we'll thank them, we'll read it over, we'll see if it's as value and then we'll like, we'll bookmark it because, you know, maybe we'll need it in six months for some reason. Um, but we definitely don't want to be viewed as like a PPC agency or a Facebook agency or a Snap or Google because we're not and that's not where we're going to go. I let other people be that kind of like branding. We are like a strategy marketing revenue optimization agency and our core competency just has to be run and paid ads because that's where we came from. But we're like more than that. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, and, and with that, I, I know that you guys are doing a lot with with alternative ad platforms. And it's it's an area I don't know much about. I, I think not in my experience, not a lot of people do. So I'd love to hear um, what, you know, what what are those alternative ad platforms and how should should brands and agencies be thinking about them? Yeah, that's that's like often in marketing we joke that like it depends is the answer. You know, for a lot of our e-commerce clients, um, if we're trying to move money off of Facebook, which is what I think everybody's been trying to do, you know, in the last six months since updates have happened, you know, the two places we look to move money is we either move money to Snap ads or Snapchat because you know, the creative you have on Facebook, you could reformat, re-edit and test on Snap. So there's more uh, platform parity there, if you will, from a creative standpoint. Um, and then the other place we obviously look to move money to is just Google. They've got 70, 90% of the search market, depending on where you are in the world. And so if you're going to take money from a big platform, the obvious place to go is on Google. And then also Google owns YouTube, which sometimes people forget. So that's like a separate platform on its own, really. Like doing video and doing video really well from a paid perspective is like a whole other ball of wax. And so those are kind of the two platforms we immediately look at for clients. Um, but beyond that, depending on like what your goals are. So we sometimes work with like fintech and SaaS brands on top of e-commerce. And so we'll get things like Quora has ads or Reddit has ads. Those can be great for both performance marketing, but also for branding, depending on what your objective and goals are. Beyond that, you could look at, excuse me, beyond that, you could look at like LinkedIn. Uh, yes, the CPCs and CPMs on LinkedIn are higher, but if you're in sort of a B2B space or you want to go after people who are more and have a higher income, you know, that higher CPC could be compensated because you potentially get a customer that has a higher average order value. So often LinkedIn is, is forgotten because it is a very B2B place, but it could be a place that you want to target people who've got cash and money or people in like 
the executive suite. Uh, and then beyond that, I mean, there are other places you probably could run stuff like uh, Waze has ads, Stack Overflow has ads. Um, there's other things I'm probably, I'm sure I'm forgetting that has ads. Obviously, Amazon has ads. Um, so there's lots of places to go. It kind of just depends, I guess, on like, you know, how much money you're going to move over, you know, which channel probably has the best opportunity. We often don't go with Amazon for the challenge of, you know, Amazon has all your customer data. It has all the credit card data. You don't have access to that. So on top of like usually making less money than if you came to your website and bought, you don't get any of that customer data that you can use to, you know, upsell someone, cross-sell someone, sell them your second product that you're going to launch in two months. And so Amazon's not our first place of call. Plus Amazon, you know, not every client is going to have this happen, but they'll copy your product, put a cheaper one out there, and that makes make it harder for you to comp compete if you're going to do something like in America, as an example, or in the UK or in Europe. Um, people say yeah. Amazon launches 1,400 brands or whatever a year, but it's like some of those are going to be successful. So it's like, do I want to give Amazon more data? No, and Amazon doesn't. Amazon Bezos doesn't need my money. Um, right. And so, so with that, with those alternative ad platforms, it's almost like each one of those environments kind of has their own, you know, idiosyncrasies. And mm -hmm. when I think of Reddit, it's more edgy. The ads are usually funnier or whatever. And Snapchat's, uh, you know, it's kind of the same idea, I guess. You associate Snapchat now with like a younger audience and everything. So I'd love to hear like, do you have resident experts and people that, you know, are, are focused on writing copy for those spaces? Like how, how are you kind of dealing with, you know, the idiosyncrasies of each one? Totally. Some clients have like a marketing team internally, so they'll write all the copy and we'll just be like, you know, Snapchat is 34 characters for the headline. You sent me 40 characters, chop off two words and come back to me. Other times we'll help clients write the copy because like I've been on Snap since 2018, like as a person and I've been running ads for the last couple of years. So I understand pretty well. But the interesting thing you said is, is partially incorrect. Like lots of people think of Snap as like a younger audience, but Snap has worked hard over the last couple of years to get people 25 plus, especially 30 plus. Like Will Smith has a show on there. Other famous people have shows on there. And so they're working hard to not make uh, just an instant communication app. But if you think of like apps like the Wii app in China and other apps where it's an app that you can like pay for the Metro and like scan for QR codes for like nutrition information on wine and food. And so it's an app that you do lots of things from and communication just happens to be one of those things. And so we've run everything from like real expensive women's shoes to flowers, to mountain bike parts and mountain bike ads and done really well on the platform to high tech water bottles. And so I often tell clients, like it isn't just for people under 18, like I'm 39 next year, I'm on the platform. I talk with my friends, I find it really enjoyable. Um, and I'm a person who's like, I've resisted doing like GIFs and things and like my tweets and my emails for years because I'm just like, this is really stupid. And I do still think it's really stupid, but sometimes I do because it's fun. Um, and so I think it's, it's sometimes educating clients of like, well, this used to be true, but like Snap has come a long way. They've got like mini apps, which are like mini apps you can download. So like Headspace is on there. So if you need help with like meditation. And so Snap is not what it used to be three years ago, but they've not always done a good job of communicating all the things they could do or all the things they are in the last couple of years because they've just released so many things and people have just like not had it on their radar because it's just like, oh, it's Snap. I'm not going to read this article. And like Snap is actually pretty great if you want to do things beyond just talking with your friends. Yeah, that's interesting. And I just remember when they you know, where the, the sort of bell of the ball and getting multi-billion dollar valuations and then the Instagram 
from the outside looking in, it seemed like they, they took over, but that, there, there, there could be a lot more going on. And with that, you know, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on Twitter. I guess my understanding, and I could be wrong about this, I'm not an expert, is that they're kind of like historically not doing as much as they could to, to monetize and to make the ad platform work. But I'd love to hear your experience with them and if you consider them an, ad, uh, an alternative platform or not at this point. I would say what well, everything you just said is true. Yeah. I've also probably not run an ad in probably three years on the platform, though I see my friends who so tweet, something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. tweet and talk about it. I'm like, yeah, I yeah. don't think we need to run ads on Twitter. But I think, you know, when I used to work at my last job before I started the agency four years ago, we used to look at Twitter as a content distribution platform. So whether it's organic or paid, if we're going to launch an ebook or a report or a trailer or a video or something, that's the place to do it because people want to consume content on Twitter and share content, whether it, it's content that makes them happy, sad, enraged or not. Um, you know, I think that's where Twitter excels. There's, there were some tweets either last night or the night before talking about Twitter's going to release, um, kind of like a, an app within the platform that's kind of like that app clubhouse so where people can like have little communities in and have voice conversations. Um, I saw some screenshots and it looks kind of interesting. I think it's, if you go to like the Twitter handle, Twitter space or Twitter spaces is, is the handle for the, the new product. So that could be super interesting, but yeah, we don't run ads on there because we're very performance driven as an agency. Like our goal is to like spend a dollar today and get back a dollar tomorrow, next week, next month, whatever the sales cycle is. And Twitter's, way down on our list of places we'd go to spend money. It's like Facebook and Google. Maybe we'll think about Amazon, but definitely like Snap and we'll get like LinkedIn. We'll get potential Amazon, like you said, and then other platforms beyond there. Um, the only thing we try to guarantee with each client is not have a client dependent on just one ad platform. Often clients will come to us and they're just on Facebook or just on Google. We try to at least get them on both because it's like, if one of these two goes down, at least you've got money in another platform that you're not going to like lose your whole business because some clients are only drive sales because of paid ads. They do a bit of email, but like the people you email are usually the people coming in from like organic and paid ads. And so like you need like to diversify your media beyond just Facebook or just Google. Yeah, it almost just seems like a classic, you know, like uh, asset diversification strategy. Just like even if you're not a gold bug, you might have like some small percentage of your money in metals or something. So, 100%. Yeah, it makes makes a lot of sense. Um, And and with that, I I know before the show, we were talking about some some major updates with with Facebook and Apple. And I'm out of the loop, to be honest. So, I'd love to hear what's, what's going on and explain like I'm five. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. I mean, that's how I explain things to my mom. She's not a technical yeah. person. She's come a long way in five years, but she's still not a technical person. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, the short version is, you know, love or hate them. Apple's a trillion dollar company. They've made mistakes as well. So it's not like they're absolved of mistakes. But what they've been trying to do the last couple of years is they've taken the stance of like, your privacy as a consumer is more important than selling your information to, you know, advertisers, which is what, you know, Google does, Facebook does. Amazon doesn't do it because they sell it to their internal network to run ads, but any big platform, like if you're not paying for it, you're the product and they're selling your information. Apple's trying to take the other stance where like, we're going to make it hard for governments to get access to your phone and hack it. We're not going to give them back door to the FBI. We're going to like, make sure you understand that when you accept something, you're giving people at these big companies access to your data that they're going to sell to people as a brokerage, which people don't understand how it works. You know, even though we're, 30, 40 years, whatever, we're into the mention of the internet, there's still people who don't get to understand how the internet actually works. Uh, and that like you're sold as like an ID to people to run ads. And so Apple's basically said, we're going to stop all of that. And so their iOS 
14 update, which they pushed back, I think a year now, but it's supposed to come out next year is basically going to like put a cage on your iPhone to the point that like, you have to really work hard to like give people access to your data that they would sell to other people. And so what's happened this week is Facebook has bought full page articles in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, and I think the Washington Post is the three of them, which is ironic because Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, but that's another story for another day. Uh, and Apple's basically uh, been called out by Facebook. Facebook says, what Apple's doing is wrong. It's going to hurt millions of small businesses that use our platform to like run their ads, uh, which is an ironic statement for Facebook to take because years ago, Facebook didn't have an issue of taking organic reach from like 100% to like 1%, to less than 1%, to, to the point that organic reach on Facebook is nil and you've now got to spend money that you weren't spending before on top of the time you're investing on Facebook to now get organic reach for your small businesses, bakery in Nova Scotia or your small business bakery in upstate New York or wherever it is. And so we often see this with, you know, Google and Instagram, these big brands just have a circle jerk of a clusterfuck of trying to see who can one-up each other and act like they care about small businesses. But in the end, they don't care about anybody but themselves. Their goal is to their shareholders, which is to make as much money as possible. And they'll do what they want that's in their best interest. Vis-a-vis, they will take out full-page ads that act like they care, but Facebook doesn't care. I'm not saying that Facebook is worse than Apple. We could debate that all day. But Facebook is not absolved of like screwing over everybody, including advertisers, to get what they want. And so next year, this change is going to make it harder for not only Facebook to make money, but it's going to make it harder for us as advertisers because we're going to have less data of like what's actually working because we're not going to have you know, the Facebook pixel attached to each person who takes an action outside of the Facebook platform. So next year is going to be even harder than it has been. It's like going back to the, let's say the 50s and 60s and maybe even the 70s where like you put up a TV commercial or a billboard and you didn't know if it worked or not because there wasn't, you know, there wasn't Nielsen around potentially to help you track that stuff. Um, And so it's going to be a hard year for some marketers who either haven't been tracking things very well or don't understand the numbers in the business. I know most of my clients' numbers in terms of revenue and where we've gone because we like literally track the revenue from like the day they were on Shopify because 90% of our clients are on Shopify to like today. And we're always tracking revenue to figure out what the store revenue is. So next year when this happens, we can try to figure out like, is there been a drop? Is Facebook really doing worse? Is it just this update? Um, So it's basically... In short, if I was going to sum it up in Cole's notes, Apple's locking down your phone so you don't get screwed over by Facebook and other places. And Facebook hates it and wants to say that like Apple is bad when Facebook has done just as many bad things and they just don't want to get called out on it. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. And uh, it's 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 funny. Like I wonder, I, I sort of am optimistic for for lots of agencies that are in the ad business because you'll you know you'll make it work. You have uh, to. Yeah, you'll exactly. And there certainly were lots of agencies doing well uh, before the internet, right? And, and you look at the Mad Men style agencies where couldn't yeah. measure anything, and then they <laughs> had a really bad day when yeah. visibility came along. So you know, I guess it could play out a million different ways. Yeah, it can. I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen next year. Um, you know, Apple can decide to push this back another year or whatever. Um, but all I know is in either case, you should prepare for it if you're not. And if you're a client or you've got a freelancer or an, or an agency or someone outside running your ads, you should ask them about this iOS update for Facebook. And if they say if they have no idea what you're talking about, fire them and find somebody new. Uh, because this has been the news for the last year and they should at least know what it is, even if they can't like 
explain it on a deeper level. They should at least know what it is. Uh, and I'd yeah. say ask them on a phone call. Don't ask them in an email because they'll just go and research it. And that doesn't help you if they've not been prepared for this the last year. Yeah, that's great advice. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Dwayne, uh, thank you so much for your time, man. How, how can people get in touch with you? Totally. I spend way too much time on Twitter. So Dwayne Brown on Twitter is really good. I also spend a lot of time on Reddit, so you can go there. But most people will do Twitter, or if you just go to takesomerisk.com, there's no S on risk, so just takesomerisk.com. You can like shoot me an email if you want to chat, if you want to hire an agency, if you're having a problem, you want to like get 30 minutes of my time, I'll gladly like have a conversation with you. Um, and that's, that's kind of the best way. Yeah, and we'd love to have you back on uh, as as these big things start transpiring in the new year and get your take on it. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Anytime. Thanks. I had a great time. Likewise. Yeah, take care. Thanks for listening to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. If you would like to get access to 10 effective agency-to-brand email outreach templates, again, this is a way to get inspired and open doors tastefully with your future dream clients by learning from real campaigns. So if you'd like to get access to that, you can go to saleschema.com slash templates, plural. Again, that's saleschema.com slash templates. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to catching you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.